Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel. Looking forward to starting this Gospel with you this morning. It's going to start off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham all the way to Jesus Christ. And I know that you're really excited about genealogies. But I'm hoping that this morning you'll see that if you take some time to go through those genealogies, you'll find some really remarkable and wonderful things. And um, we'll certainly see that today. But as we look at this gospel today, as we begin the gospel of Matthew, this man, his original name was Levi. That was his name. But Jesus called him Matthew. And his name means gift of the Lord. And yet, he's a tax collector. Do you find an interesting dichotomy there? He's a tax collector, which was a person who was hated in that time. And they're not really popular today either, to be honest with you. But uh, they were really hated back at this time. In fact, the Roman government gave the tax collectors an, uh, a freedom, saying that this is what we expect you to collect for each person. But if you get a little bit more, then you can kind of take the balance and make it go south into your pocket, right? And so that's what a lot of them did. They charged a little more and they kept the balance or they kept that extra in their pockets. And so the Jews knew this and they despised tax collectors and Levi or Matthew was one of those men who would sit at the, the, the receipt of custom and receive taxes and, um, and, and perhaps, and I believe he had because he admitted that he'd, he'd done this, but it's interesting that Levi, uh, who was accustomed to taking from the Jews taxes, and yet God would choose this man whose name means gift of God to write this gospel. And truly, Matthew was a gift of the Lord to us. Because he was a man that nobody really cared for, and yet God loves to choose the unlovable. He loves to choose those things that the world casts away. And I was one of those cast-offs of the world. And the, when, I, when the world was no, not interested in me, the Lord says, hey, I'm interested in you. And I'm like, Lord, I don't have any, I, I've left everything, the, all the goals, the things that I desire to do in my life. I'm kind of washed up. And the Lord goes, oh, I got a better plan for your life. And he's got one for you, too. Do you know that, that he's got a great plan for your life? Regardless of your age this morning, it doesn't matter how old you are, he's still got a great plan for your life. But truly, Matthew was a gift of the Lord because he gave us this wonderful account of Jesus' life, the miracles that he did, and he was one of the 12 apostles, or the disciples, as we might call them. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, this is the only place in the Bible where it mentions that Matthew was a tax collector. You can, you can devise it from another verse, and, and, I, and I think it's in, um, uh, in, in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark and Luke, there's some, you can devise that. But this one says very clearly, notice in verse 2 of Matthew, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and then James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. And then in verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and notice Matthew, the tax collector. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, that's interesting. And Judas Iscariot last, who also betrayed him. Who also betrayed him. And who was this gospel written to? 
Well, it was written to the Jews. It's often been said that Matthew is a, a gospel that's written by a Jew to the Jews about a Jew, Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people, they needed to know that Jesus is their Messiah, the King of Israel, the rightful heir to the throne of David, that the scriptures that have been foretelling for hundreds of years and even for a few thousand years, that he is the rightful heir to the throne, that he is from the tribe of Judah, that he would ultimately bear the scepter, the kingship, the right to rule, not only over Israel, but over the whole entire earth, over all of creation. Isn't Jesus the author and the finisher of all things? Isn't he the creator of all things? Doesn't he desire, doesn't he deserve, excuse me, to rule over what he has created? He does. When the, the Ford factory, when they make Ford trucks, they have the right to dismantle that truck right on, the, right on the assembly line and make changes to a part. They have the right. Because they have sovereignty over that. And God is sovereign over us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. That pretty much includes everything, doesn't it? And I love that. But notice that this gospel was written after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and Matthew wanted to prove, and here is the crux behind this gospel. There's a viewpoint, there is a, 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 a reason, a purpose behind the gospel, and that's so Matthew could show and prove through the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the rightful heir. He's the king of the Jews. He has the rightful heir. He's the rightful heir to the king or to the throne of David, excuse me. And so he wants to prove that. Just as we looked at, remember John's gospel, the whole crux of, the John's, of John's gospel was John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, right? Where it says, And these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Well, Matthew has a purpose as well, and that's to show that Jesus is the King of the Jews, that he is the soon, uh, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, a little bit different of a slant, showing that he's the King of the Jews, and he's the King and the rightful heir to Judah. Now, when was this gospel written? We really don't know for sure. We know that it happened sometime before 70 A.D., perhaps even as early as 50 A.D., and the reason we know that is because of what is recorded for us in Matthew 24. Now, this is the way you have to read the Bible. When you read this, look at this verse, in 24 verse 1. And so it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the building the buildings of the temple. Now, if the temple had been destroyed, they would have said, Lord, look at all the ruins, uh, what, the, what the Romans have done. But that's not what happened. The temple in Jerusalem was very much intact, so we know that this had to have been written earlier than that. And see, that's a good way to read the Bible. This is what they call internal evidence. It's evidence or a fact that can be understood by the Scripture itself. You don't need to go looking anywhere else. You can just read it and devise what is written there. And I would encourage you to read the Bible like that. Put together these thoughts. Don't just read and, and, and pretend that it's not there or overlook it. Really look at it and say, you know, where could this have been placed? And, and it all makes sense. It all makes sense. And if you read it that way, God's not afraid for you to come at it with all of your mental faculties. 
Come to the word of God with your entire heart and mind. You don't have to check in at the door. You don't have to believe in some kind of blind faith. Hey, let me tell you something. People say that, well, if you believe in Jesus, it's just blind faith. No, it's not. It's more substantiated than anything else. <laughs> There's proof. It's all over the place. It's screaming out. What does uh, Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the earth shows forth his handiwork. You look at anything and you look at it in, in minutiae. You stick it under a microscope or you examine it. And what do you find? Do you find chaos and everything falling apart and nothing making sense? No, you find exactly the opposite. You find intense order. It's intense order. Because if he is almighty God, who he says he is, all of his creation is designed specifically for a purpose and a plan. And he's got it all covered. You know, we were watching this show last night, and it was about polar bears. And it was like an hour and a half of nothing but polar bears and how they live and everything like that. And I was surprised and amazed that God would keep these creatures. They're on these, you know... Uh, roaming around on ice blocks and, 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 and learning how to fish and, and the mother teaching the cubs how to do all. How did that happen? How did they know to do certain things to, so that they could live and eat and survive? God put it in there. God put it in there. It's their, God made them that way. And they do it very naturally. No one had to show them. But the mothers now show the, the, you know, the little ones, and the little ones grow up, and they show their little ones, and it's all been embedded into them. And so, uh, again, I, I've, I've digressed, and I'm thankful that you guys are very patient. So, um, but notice what it says, that uh, you know, this is internal evidence. And when we look at uh, the first time that Jesus met Matthew, it was in Matthew chapter 9, and this was after Jesus had healed a paralytic. And notice what it says. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a, na a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. And now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he hanging out with these people of ill repute? Isn't he supposed to be the Messiah, as you claim? Well, if he's the Messiah, he wouldn't hang out with unclean people. Ah, but I think Jesus would rather hang out with people who have no clue of who he is than a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. He would much rather hang out with the serial killers and the murderers and the sexually immoral because there's hope for them. <laughs> and, and many of them will come to Christ and, and the, the stuffy people from Oxford and their uh, Ivy League language, they're going to get stuck. Not all of them, of course. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's true, he came to call sinners to repentance. And as we look at Matthew again, in order to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David, the king of the Jews. He quotes Old Testament passages concerning Jesus more than in any other gospel account. In fact, 
more Old Testament passages are quoted in Matthew than any other book of the Bible except for the book of Revelation. Revelation has 249 different quotations of the Old Testament in it. And the very next one is this one, Matthew, and for good reason. Because if his goal is to show us that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David, that he is the king of the Jews, then what has he got to rely upon? Where is he going to get his source from? Where is he going to get his source material from? You've got to be able to point to something. And remember, they didn't have the, the New Testament. It wasn't written. When Matthew wrote this gospel, they had the Old Testament. And he shows through those Old Testament scriptures. And as we go through Matthew, we're going to see that. And the intent is going to be pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, pointing and showing and proving that he is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And not only the King of the Jews, but the King of all of us. Amen? I love that. Now, you remember me saying many times that each of the gospel accounts are pieces of events in the life of Jesus and his ministry. And when, they're, when all of these gospel of the four are put together, they form a composite of, of Jesus' life. And the Bible even says that there's even more things that could have been written. Didn't we read that at the very end of John's gospel? There are many things that Jesus did that were, weren't written. He says, for I suppose that even if the, the whole world couldn't contain the books and the libraries that could be written about Jesus' life. And so there were many more things that he did, but what we have is sufficient to understand his life and the different aspects and the purposes behind these gospel accounts. And they all have different vantage points, and that's what makes them so sweet, because you can go to an accident, and you can see uh, an accident taking place, for instance, a traffic accident, and one person has one uh, view and understanding of the accident, and another person over there sees another view of it, and another person over here saw something that this guy didn't see. And when you put them all together, what do you do? The police report comes, and the police gets all these people together and say, well, tell me what happened. Well, he came flying through the thing. He was on his phone. He didn't see. He didn't stop. And he ran into this other car. And this other person says, well, yeah, that happened. But I also saw him at the last minute. He pulled his phone away and he slammed on his brakes. Okay, that adds to the information. And so it goes and so it goes. And the gospel accounts are a lot like that. So I would encourage you to read them. And even there's harmonies of the gospels that lay everything out in chronological order. And it really helps. And I've been trying over the last uh, couple of years as we've been going through the Gospels, to really kind of show you that, especially through the Gospel of John. Actually, only through the Gospel of John. We've only been through one Gospel. We're in our second one, right? So uh, so I'm hoping to continue to do that, to give um, a a sense of where we're going in, in his life. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called the synoptic Gospels, and the reason being is because they contain a lot of similar events, hence the word sin, or S-Y-N, synoptic. It means some similar events and miracles are covered within these three Gospel accounts. But John was completely different, you remember. He, he, He had a whole different thing. And so each of these gospel accounts have their own purposes. Matthew, again, Jesus, the king of the Jews, the heir to the throne of David. The gospel of Mark, when we get to that, Jesus speaking of his servanthood, his servant nature. And then Luke, Jesus being the perfect man. And John, we already saw this, that Jesus is almighty God in the flesh. And it's interesting, too, that each of these gospels has a 
a symbol or an emblem or an ensign assigned to them from other areas of the scripture. And Matthew's gospel is seen as a lion, and we'll look at why that is. And Mark, an ox or a calf. Uh, Luke, because it speaks of Jesus being the perfect man, it speaks of a man. And certainly John with an eagle, speaking of Jesus' heavenly origins. And we see this in Ezekiel very clearly in the very first chapter, beginning in verse 4. Notice what it says. Ezekiel writing says, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it. And radiating out of its midst, midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And also from within the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They each had the likeness of a man. And each one had four faces. And each one had four wings. And their legs were straight. And the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. And they sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. And the hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. And their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Now, does everybody understand? Can you visualize that? A little tough, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, but, but he says in verse 10, and As for the likeness of their faces, notice, each one had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. And these four faces um, we see as uh, perhaps... Uh, representatives of God's creation, the top of the food chain, the, the, the federal head, if you will, over parts of the animal kingdom. We think of man. He's the, God gave him dominion over all things. And then we see the lion, who is the greatest among the wild beasts. We see the ox or the calf, the greatest among the domesticated animals. An eagle, certainly the greatest of the birds. That's why we in America have the eagle as our uh, national emblem. It's the greatest of the birds because we're the greatest nation on the earth. Still are. But we see these symbols, these four living creatures, also in Revelation. Uh, let me just read verse 7. It says, The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature. And this is uh, God revealing to John this, this vision of the throne room of God in, in Revelation chapter 4. And he sees the same creatures that Ezekiel saw back when he was in Babylon. God had revealed that to him. And now John is getting the same vision of the same thing. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And all of these have the likeness or character of Jesus and the focus of these different gospel accounts. And, and so when we look at the gospel of Matthew, we're seeing this idea of a lion, of a lion. And where do we get that? It's certainly the uh, Jerusalem's official emblem. You see the lion represents Judah. It always has. The tribe from which David would come, that Jesus Christ would ultimately come. And it's all over Jerusalem. You see it on their manhole covers in the, in the streets. I've taken this picture, and you can see the lion on that. They, they have them on their flags. The lion on the flag symbolizing the, of Judah, of Jerusalem. Even on their trash containers, they have these lion insignias all over the place. And so if this emblem of a lion has significance, 
And if what we looked at so far is, if there's some, some validity to that, then, then there ought to be something in the Scripture concerning it. And there is. And there is. Now, we are going to get into the, into the gospel here shortly, because the genealogy is going to go pretty quick. But notice, in Genesis 49, there ought to be something concerning this idea of a lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see it when Jacob was on his deathbed. Remember, in Egypt, before the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Remember that Jacob was on his deathbed and he blesses his sons, his 12 sons. And finally, in verse 8, he gets to Judah and he says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's children shall bow down before you. And notice verse 9, the very first time in all the scripture where the word lion is even mentioned. It's the very first time. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall raise, arouse him? And here's the verse, the scepter, the right to rule, the kingship, shall not depart from Judah. Remember that. Shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is a nickname or a title of the Messiah. It's an epithet of Messiah. That's exactly what it means. And it goes on, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, meaning they're going to bow down to him. He's going to be sovereign over them. And certainly all the kings of Judah, that's who they were. They were the kings. And certainly it looks even forward beyond Israel and looks forward even to us now into the millennial reign when Jesus Christ will sit on the throne in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and he will have reign over all of the earth. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Does that sound... Does that sound apocalyptic to you? Does that sound like the second coming of Christ? Yeah, it does. And for good reason. And his clothes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Describing the Savior who would come back to save his people. So already in Genesis, already in Genesis, we understand that there's something special, something significant about this line of Judah that's symbolized as the lion There's something specific. There's a specific thing about the kings and even a specific king that will come from this line. And yes, it certainly is David. And I'm the spoiler alert, it's also referring to Jesus. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read something to you, but I want you to see it yourself. This is a chapter that we've been going through. We just finished 2 Samuel on Thursday night, so we're in 1 Kings. I would encourage you, by the way as a, a, an encouragement to join us on Thursday nights. We're going through the Old Testament, and I'm having a ball. And I hope that those of you who are coming are as well, because I'm learning so much about uh, the history of Israel and God's plan of redemption all throughout the Old Testament. It's the same. And so come out on Thursday nights and join us as we get through this. It's wonderful. But notice... In chapter, uh, in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is being spoken to through the prophet Nathan by God himself. And this is what, what happens. It says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling, speaking of David, 
that the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around. And then the king said to Nathan, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And then Nathan said to the king, Well, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in, David? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. And wherever have I moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to David, my servant, thus says the Lord God, I took you from the sheepfold and from the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they will, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And nor shall the sun of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. For since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And this is what we call the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant that God made with David. Very important one, especially as we're getting into Matthew here because we're, we're tracing this through about the whole, this whole idea of Jesus being the, the rightful heir to the, to the king, to, to, the, to, the, to the throne of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because that's what Matthew is going to be establishing all throughout this gospel. Notice what he says. When your days are fulfilled, David, God says to him, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, who is he talking about? Well, immediately he's talking about Solomon, isn't he? But he's also talking about one greater than Solomon that would come on the earth and be born into the Virgin Mary several hundreds of years after Jesus, the seed of the woman. It goes back to Genesis 3.15. So notice... He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish of the throne of his kingdom what forever. So this can't be speaking now of Solomon, because this kingdom, Solomon only lasted for uh, about 69 years on this planet and ruled 40 of them. And so he's speaking of a kingdom that's going to last forever. And notice what he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity. Now this he's talking about Solomon. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, when I, whom I removed before you. But notice verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Yes, David of the line of Judah, he's saying to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be established for you forever before you. And he continues, Your throne shall be established forever. He repeats it again to make sure that the point is made. See, the house that God was going to build for David was a succession of kings. 
from Judah that would ultimately culminate in Jesus coming in his second coming upon the earth, which is yet future to us, and he would finally sit on the throne of David. Because you remember, the line of kings didn't last very long. It started with David, and it ended with Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the very last king when Nebuchadnezzar had come in 586 BC and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and he took Zedekiah captive. And not only that, but he, he, he killed all of Zedekiah's sons. And then when he killed his sons, right before his eyes, he gouged his eyes out. So the last thing he saw was him, Nebuchadnezzar, murdering his sons. Sounds like a really nice guy. He takes his eyes out puts him in prison, sends him to Babylon, and he dies in a prison cell in Babylon. And so the kingly line of Judah was cut for a season. <laughs> but it's going to resume when Jesus comes. And so far, there has not been a Judah, a king from Judah, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem since 586 B.C., so here we are, 2,500 plus years later, and still no king on the throne of Judah. No king of Judah on the throne of David. But soon, the Bible tells us that he will come. And when Jesus returns to the earth, he will be the rightful king. And so we see this importance because Jesus was from the line of David too. And in fact, that's why this genealogy that we're starting off with is so important because it establishes that fact, that lineage, and it makes it very clear in two different ways in the Bible it tells us this. And even after David and Solomon's reign, the prophets of the Old Testament continued to prophesy of this dynasty of Judah in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall shoot out of his roots, because the kingship had been severed with Zedekiah. And, and Isaiah is prophesying that that's going to happen. And oh, by the way, don't worry, because there's going to be a green shoot coming out of that stump of Jesse, out of, out of the line of David. There's going to be a green splint that's going to come up. And who is that? A branch, a netzer, is what the Hebrew calls it. That's going to be Jesus. He's going to come up from that. Yes, the kingdom is going to be severed for a season. Zedekiah was the last one, but now we look forward to when Jesus comes physically to the earth and he will fulfill this prophecy. And I love what it says. It says, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And it even goes even further. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the sevenfold nature of the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And, and Isaiah goes on in verse 6 and even talks about the conditions of the time when Jesus, the king of Israel, the king of, the, of Judah, when he comes into his millennial reign, it even gives us the temperature, the climate, if you will, of what those days are going to look at. Look at verse 6 with me, and let me read it to you. The wolf also, the wolf, a predator, will lie down with the lamb. They are natural enemies, but in the millennial kingdom, they're going to lie down together. Miracle of miracles, cats and dogs living together. Amazing. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze. The cow and the bear shall graze? That's interesting. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play on the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. 
as the waters cover the sea. And notice what it says in verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who is that root? It's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Love it. All the world will come before him. Yes, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Believer and unbeliever. God would rather us come to him as believers and bow our knee to him. And we bow our knee to him now, don't we? Because he's the great king. He loves us. He saved my soul. What more could I do, Lord? What can I give you? Can I, what more could I give you? That should be the question of my heart. Take all of me, right? But even in Micah, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of what? Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, capital O, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Even in Revelation, we saw the Apostle John speaking, and he says, as I wept much, and there was no one found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Again, going all the way back to Isaiah 11 that we just read. All of these things to prove and to show that it's through the line of Judah, as Jacob said in Genesis 49.10, that he would be, the scepter would not depart. It would come through ultimately David and then from David through his lineage all the way down to Jesus Christ. And we will be getting into this shortly here, this, this uh, genealogy, because that's exactly what it points to. It proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Again, you can be encouraged that you can follow the Lord in that way. You can read his word that way. Read it and know it. And share it, because people think this is just some kind of myth that's been handed down over generations and have, has been, um, you know, over time it's been, you know, smithed and, and reworked and people have, you know, interjected things in it and stuff like that. that. That is not the truth. Universities will tell you that. Oh, it's just a bunch of myths from Jewish people. It's just a bunch of myths, and it's all been oral tradition. It's been passed down, and it's so corrupt. Ha, you don't know anything. See, these guys need to go to school and learn the truth because this has been around a lot longer than them and a lot longer before even the United States was even anything. So who are you going to trust? I don't have a problem with education, but when an educator is, is willingly ignorant, he's got a problem. And he needs to go back to his first roots again. <laughs> he needs to go examine the truth. So Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He shall reign over all. Romans 15 tells us that. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he, shall, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. Yes, not only just over the Jews is he a Savior, but he's a Savior to the world. Isn't that what Luke tells us? Do you remember what happened? And again, just because there's some who say, well, Jesus was just the, the king of Judah over the Jewish people, and it's just for the Jewish people. That's not true at all. The Bible says something different. In Luke chapter 2, it says this. They were in the same country, shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, 
An angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were very afraid. And then the angel said to them, notice this, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to just the Jewish people? No. This is what it says. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. All, not just the Jews. Gentiles and everything else. So this is why the gospel, this gospel, is so significant because it lays out for us the life and the ministry, which it does, but it proves to us that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, the heir to the throne of David, the Savior of the world, and this was by no mistake. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. This was a masterful plan. Now let's look at it. So as we look at chapter or verse 1 of chapter 1, it tells us this genealogy from Abraham to Jesus, a total of 42 generations, and we're going to go through this step by step, but one of the things uh, that we're going to see is that the genealogy is going to trace Jesus' royal legal line through Joseph. Through Joseph. Because uh, Joseph was, was Joseph Jesus' biological father? He wasn't. But was he his caretaker? Yes. But was he also born of the Virgin Mary? Was Mary from the tribe of Judah? You better believe she was. And so now, again, this proof is so undeniable, unmistakable. So now he's going to take us through Joseph's line just to prove to us, hey, that even if we look at Joseph, who was, he had nothing to do with the birth of Christ, right? He didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> We're going to find, well, actually, let me just, let's just look at this. In Matthew chapter 1, that, that's what it tells us. It's from, it's down, it's from uh, Abraham down to Joseph and ultimately to Jesus. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah uh, begot Shealtiel. And I'm just going to go through it for the sake of time here. But when he gets down to verse 16, it says, And Jacob, or Jacob, not Jacob, the, the, the patriarch of the 12 tribes, different Jacob, that name was very popular. This was, Jake, this was Joseph's father's name, that Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, or Christos, or the Messiah. That's what this genealogy purports to show. And we'll also see, and we don't have time to, to spend any great detail on this, but there's also another genealogy. You might want to write it in the margin of chapter one or verse 1 here. Um, it's in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23 through 38. And basically, it's another genealogy, but this one's interesting because it traces Jesus' line from, um, from Jesus going back to Adam, the first man. But it does so in a very different way. It takes on Mary's side of the family. Turn with me just really quick. We, we have to look at this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, and that's all we really need to look at. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. I just want you to underline something to show you that this is what it is. There's a lot of twists and gyrations in this genealogy, and there's reasons for that, but we're not going to get through that. I just want to show you one thing. Notice, we know that the Matthew genealogy takes us through Joseph's line, but now we look at, 
Luke chapter 3, and look at verse 23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, or Heli. Didn't we just read in Matthew that his dad was Jacob or Jacob? So who is this Heli? Well, it's Mary's father. This is Joseph's father-in-law. Because Mary, remember, had many sisters. Some of them were with her at the, tomb, or at, you know, at, the, at the crucifixion. So Mary had other sisters, and evidently this man, Heli, didn't have a son. So now we look at Joseph as being his only son-in-law. And so to prove that, yes, not only through Joseph, but also through Mary, and when you see the word Heli, from verse 23 through 27, it speaks of his line, and then ultimately it catches up in, what, verse uh, 28? It picks up with Zerubbabel, and then it goes on, and it continues what Matthew told us in his. So now we take a slight little turn in the, in the, in the uh, genealogy to prove that whether it's through Mary, through Joseph, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David the king of Judah. Could it get any more explicit? Could it get any more proof-laden than this? And the more you study it, the more exciting it gets. There's a lot of twists and turns in Luke's uh, genealogy, but we'll go on here. So notice, so um, if we look at the outline of this, of this genealogy, it's laid out pretty simply, and verse 17 gives us the um, outline it tells us, so all the generations, uh, go back to, I'm sorry, back to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. But verse 17 gives us the outline of what has just been spoken of in the first 16 verses. Notice, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, 14 generations. From the captivity of Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. And we're going to read each one of those. We're going to read each one of those. And so we can see that verse 2 through 6, Abraham through David, and, and so on. And what I find really interesting as we go along, I have to mention this because to me this is just one of the sweet things about the Lord, is as we go through this genealogy, we're going to see five different women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Normally genealogies don't have women in them. The line goes from a father to a son. The name gets carried on through the son. But here in this genealogy, specifically in Matthew, the Holy Spirit sees fit to include these five women. And I find it very interesting because these women are, some of them have, uh, not all of them, but a few of them have questionable backgrounds. One is uh, uh, played the harlot. Another one uh, was a Gentile prostitute. Uh, one of them was, another one was a Gentile. Another one was one who committed adultery with David. And then finally, the only one who seems to be pretty spotless is Mary. If I were God, I would not have put them in there. Because I would want to present myself as who I really am. I'd want to make sure that people saw that I'm really, I'm really a good God. And you can trust me because I've got a spotless, everything I do is spotless. That is true of God. But isn't it wonderful that he uses people? He uses imperfect people. And I like that because I qualify. I'm an imperfect person. And I hate to bust your bubble, but you're not perfect either. 
right? Is that true? I have to come to that realization before I need a healer, before I need a savior. I need to know that I need to be saved. And I need to be saved, so save me, God. Throw me the life preserver. I'm drowning. (laughs) But notice, the Lord was not threatened or ashamed of these women. I mean, let's just take a look at this really quick. It's it's really, um, really wonderful. Or we we will get to that, actually. Um, But in Hebrews, what does it say? Hebrews 2.11, what does it say to us? It says, For he, Jesus, who sanctifies uh, and those who are being sanctified are all of one, which, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to have these women, and some of them are, have really questionable, sketchy backgrounds. He's not ashamed to put them in because every one of these, including Rahab the harlot, yes, a Canaanite, a Gentile woman, was in Jesus' line. Yes, a Gentile prostitute. And see, that drives people who are steeped in legalism, it, drives them, it gives them hives to think that Jesus would have anything to do with these people. But see, that means that Jesus is a God of love and compassion. He doesn't condone any of these things, but he's not afraid and ashamed to call them brethren. Because he loves, and he loves fiercely. And it's for them that he came to save. And such are some of us. Such are some of us. And so, notice, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And notice, underline son of David, because this is a messianic title that he's giving. Again, because we're looking at the tribe of Judah, and Jesus being the heir to that throne of David. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, in verse 41, begins to upbraid the, uh, the, the Pharisees, and he says... Um, He asked him, he says, what do you think about Christ? What do you think about Christos, the Messiah? What do you think about him, Pharisees? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how then does David, and he's speaking of Psalm 110 here, how does David then, by the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he then his son? And no one dared ask him any more questions because he stumped the experts. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus was the son of David. But he was also David's Lord. He pre-existed before David was born, but he was also David's son. He came from that line, even though he pre-existed even before Genesis 1, verse 1. Everybody follow me? Yes. And now notice, going on in verse 2, he says, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. If you go into Genesis and look at these genealogies that are written there, this is how it goes, and this is how it's listed. So Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And then one of those 12 of, of Judah, or of Jacob, excuse me, was Judah. And notice, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar? Remember Tamar in Genesis 38? She was the daughter-in-law to Judah. Judah had a son. He was married to Tamar. The son gets sick and dies. And Jewish custom was that one of the other sons of Judah should marry 
the widow now and raise up seed for their name. But for some reason, Judah didn't do that. And so it forces Tamar's hand. And now she dresses and plays the role of a harlot. And she entices Judah, her father-in-law, to have intimacy with her. Of course, she doesn't reveal herself to him. She ends up having, she conceives and has two kids, Perez and the other. Kind of questionable. Kind of something that if I was going to go to the press, I might not want to talk about that. Might want to scoot that under the rug and kind of cancel that, censor that. But Jesus puts it right out there. The Holy Spirit says, hey, look. <laughs> He's not afraid. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed of you either. No matter where you've come from, what you've done, He's not ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of my sin. And when I came to Christ, I was ashamed. And when I came to him, he cleaned me up and he forgave me and washed me up and sent me on my way. And now I've got a plan and a purpose for my life where I had none before. But see, that's who we are. That's what he does. That's the miracle that he does. That's the mystery of the gospel. That God would die for us. In my place, that I deserve judgment. He bore the judgment for me. And now going on, and Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Really, Rahab? What's about Rahab? Well, Joshua tells us, remember, she was a Gentile prostitute from Jericho. Remember when they first came into the, to the promised land, the first city that they hit, Israel, was the city of Jericho. And it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. And again, the Lord doesn't sanitize the truth. Yes, these two kosher Jewish young men came to a harlot's house. Now, I'm sure they didn't have intimacy with her, but they, she was one, because her house was right on the wall of Jericho. So they visit her to kind of come into this town, kind of incognito, to spy out the land. What does Hebrews tell us? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down and they were encircled for seven days. But by faith, the harlot Rahab, you know, isn't that interesting? Because Rahab came to faith, but the Bible makes sure that you don't forget that she was a harlot. And I'm kind of glad for that. And I'm sure Rahab is in glory right now thinking, you know, Lord, I don't have a problem with that because I know who I am. I know I'm in you, and I'm in Christ. I don't have a problem with that, but it's good for us because we remember who she was, but who she isn't now. She's not Rahab the harlot any longer. But that's who everybody saw her, and I think the glory of God is, is magnified in keeping that name. Not so much to rub her nose in her sin, no, not at all, but rather to show his goodness and his grace. So Rahab the harlot... She did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Even in James chapter 2, it says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified? Wasn't she justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And what about Ruth? 
We see that in the genealogy here, right? That Solomon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, who was David's father. What about this What about this Ruth? Well, she was a Gentile as well. She was from Moab. She was one of the perennial enemies of Israel. She belonged to a nation that was not in cahoots with Israel. They were enemies. And Ruth was daughter-in-law to Naomi, the Jewish woman whose her husband and her sons died. And now she's got her her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law wants to go back to Israel with her instead of going back to Moab and worshiping the false gods that she had been grown up she had grown up with. She wants to go back and and worship this god that Naomi has been talking to her about, that's been grooming her for and telling her about. Sorry, I used the word groom. I know that's a bad word in this culture. But again, another very unusual woman in Jesus' genealogy. And again, this is just a point of grace. A point of grace because in Jesus' birth line, there's a hint, isn't there, of their bringing together of Jew and Gentile to form what? The church. Even in the Old Testament. Yes, the same God who called down fire is the same God who caused uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira to drop dead. People think, well, the God of the Old Testament's the angry God, and the one in the New Testament's the good guy. No, listen, he's the same. He's consistent throughout. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He is holy. And we need to reverence him. We need to worship him. Why? Because we're afraid? Yes. I am afraid of God in a sense. I'm not afraid of him now because I'm I'm one of his. But I reverence him. I I, I have an awe of him. But I'm not afraid of him anymore because I know he's not going to toast me. Like he did with Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire before the Lord. He's not going to smoke me. He loves me and you. And see, that's why he wants us to reach out to others and to tell them of this great God. Can you see the grace in this genealogy? I mean, it does. It tells us from Abraham to Jesus, the line of Judah, very clearly. And and even in Luke's uh, genealogy in chapter 3, verse 23 through 38, it tells us all of that. But in within Matthew's genealogy, showing us that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David, it even shows us these gracious little tidbits of just God's character. Yes, there's a harlot, a Gentile, Canaanite harlot in my genealogy, and yet he is not ashamed to call them brethren because Rahab came to faith. Ruth came to faith. Bathsheba, as we're going to see. You remember Bathsheba, right? She was the wife of Uriah originally, And David sees her while her husband is out fighting a battle. David's out in the top of his palace, sees her out there bathing herself. She shouldn't have done that, by the way. She maybe should have done something, bathed somewhere else. I don't know, but that's just my opinion. But David is there. He sees her. He wants her, so he fetches her. She comes over, and they have relations. You know, this, you know the, the event. The, it's not a story. It's real history. You can read it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But yes, this woman gave birth to Solomon when she and David had an adulterous affair. 
And yet God is not ashamed to call her brethren because she came to faith. And then going on, Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. These are all kings of Judah. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, a really nasty, wicked king, by the way. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah, a pretty good king. And Hezekiah begot Manasseh, another bad king. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, a wonderful reformer king. And Josiah begot Jeconiah, or his name, uh, you might have known it as Jehoiachin, or Coniah is another one of his names, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And notice, and after that they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud, and Eliud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So there it is. There's the proof. So why did I go through all of that? To show to you, to prove to you, where this all came from. It all started in Genesis. This one who had come from the line of Judah, where the scepter would not depart from his reign, his line, it all came through him, came down to David, and then David finally to Jesus Christ, the soon and coming king. Right, Pastor Richard? The soon and returning king. I like the way he ends his services usually in that way. The soon and coming king. And then finally Mary. She's in there as well. And naturally so. She's the... She carried Jesus for nine months. I think her name deserves to be in there. But again, covered in suspicion. And we're going to stop here because we already looked at verse 17. Just summarizes what we read. But in all of this, God was not ashamed to call them brethren. So there's all this evidence, all this proof of who Jesus is, who his line is, what is going to come through his line. And then even interspersed in these genealogies, we see some really wonderful things. We see God's grace all over the place. Hey, that'd be a nice shirt to make. Grace all over the place. Grace, there is. There's grace all over the place. And I'm one of those pieces of grace. And you're a person of grace of Jesus Christ. See, he loves you. He loves people. And he doesn't care what you've gone through. And we'll just end with this. Regardless of what you've gone through in your life, I don't care if you're a serial killer. I don't care what you have done. Nebuchadnezzar it tells us in Daniel chapter 4 that he gave it up to Christ. He gives his heart to God. And he's so zealous in it. He says, if anybody doesn't worship this God, off with his head. His house will be made a dunghill, right? But that's how zealous he was. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Yes, nobody thought that Neb the nebulous one would be in heaven. Nobody thought Nebi would make it, but he is in glory 
He's in glory worshiping his king, whom Daniel certainly told him much about. And God proved to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the one who rules in the affairs of man, not you. And there came a point where Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, you're right, God. I went insane for about seven years, and here you bring me into your kingdom. What can I do? (laughs) I love it. He's not ashamed to call them brethren, regardless of what they've been. Maybe you've got a sordid background. Maybe you've got a background that if if we were all to have like a show and tell on a Sunday morning, well, how bad was your life? How bad did you mess up your life? Well, let me tell you what I did. You know, and then we go on and we just like, oh, I can't believe this guy's in the same building with us. And yet here you are, saved, hopefully. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're here this morning and you're ashamed of what you've done. And it's okay to be ashamed because we ought to be ashamed for our sin. But I tell you what, when you come to Christ, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he too can say, I am not ashamed to call you brethren. Not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Are you ashamed? Are you ashamed of Jesus' name? Amen. I'm not ashamed. I'll gladly proclaim his name. How could I not? The one who saved you and I. Who saved me from not only myself in the current time, but saved me from an eternity. Listen, folks, 70 or 80 years is all we've got on this physical planet, unless you've got a really great health plan and you don't smoke or drink or hang out with those who do. You've got 70 or 80 years, maybe 90, maybe 100 if you're really fortunate, but guess what? Like a snuff of a snort of an oxen, it's gone. And then eternity, it never ends. So let me ask you the question, and we really will end here. If that be the case, and that's what the Bible very clearly says, you can make the decision of where you want to spend that eternity. You can either spend it with Jesus Christ, or you can spend it with the devil and his demons and all those who follow him. But there's pleasures forevermore in a new body that can withstand eternity when Jesus and being in his presence, there's pleasures forevermore. Or I can take door number two, where there's misery and suffering and pain for eternity. Yes, for eternity, yes. The same God of grace and love who gives us this is the same God of grace who says, if that's really what you want, if if you fought all your life and you want to go there and you've rejected my name to the very end, then I allow you that choice for you. You can make that decision. Is that the choice that you want? Honestly. See, that's what the world needs to see. They need to hear that. Is that really the choice that you want? Oh, my friends are in hell. My friends are in hell. We're going to have a party. And you know, and I'm like, you have ignorance. It's ignorance. They have no idea. And yet God has given us this treasure in earthen vessels to do what? To sit on our holy hill and do nothing? No, he's given it to us so that we would share that truth. Because folks, that is the gospel. It changed my life and it changed your life. And we have to be about our father's business and get out there and start telling people the truth. The truth. In everything, the truth in everything. The word of God, certainly, but you know what? Truth is is all around us if we search it out. What is it? I forget the verse. It's a a glory of kings to 
you know, to search out a matter. God hides it from the simple, but he gives it to his servants. So let's stand and let's pray. Again, forgive me for today. Um, I know I made a really bad mistake by scheduling what I did. So if we could please just be out of here by 1230, at least the fellowship hall, that would be great. I, I promise I won't do it again. Can I get a raise of hands? Can you forgive me? Just, you know, that way I can sleep at tonight, you know. Oh, okay, Jane's gonna, she's going to hold a grudge. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's give thanks to God. You know, he loves, he, he's so awesome. Father, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew. We thank you for what all it's, it's going to show us and what we've already seen, Lord. You are the great and sovereign God of all creation. You're the great king. You're the Messiah. You're the king of Judah. You're the, you're the king of the rightful throne of David. Lord, you are awesome and sovereign over all things. Lord, would you please... Fill us with your spirit. Every single one of us here physically and in earshot of this message, Lord, save us to the uttermost if we don't know you. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, cleanse and heal us. Set us on fire, God. Again, revive us, the church in America, and may we get out there and tell people the truth, God. Do it, please, God. Set me on fire. Not physically, thank you. Set us on fire. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you.